uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for all the people that's listening and chiming in. You didn't have to do it, but you did it anyway. So I appreciate you doing that. Hopefully that way, if we can learn how to agree to disagree, and we can live like people. When I make the hard topics, I say the hard things, I make the thing itch scratch. So if your itch is not scratching, and you're scratching on the itch, maybe you need to look yourself in the mirror. So I'm not here for no drama. I'm not here for no nothing. Just to learn, 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 and edify. This is from learning situations only. So I'm not here to get anybody's hairs up. So, again, thank you. And hopefully we can agree to disagree. I studied the Bible so I know it well. Yeah, can't let nobody make myself a self. Can't even lie, yeah, I still struggle, but I know myself. I fear God, I told him I don't want to go to hell. Pray for the sermon, I'll be asking what's the gift in me. Must be this music, cause the world think I'm so sick with it. I switch my style, some people love it, some trying to get with it. I think what matters most is I'm living out what's God written. I make mistakes, but I embrace them, I'm still human. I escape from that place that made me feel ruined. So every day I still chase what I think I'm losing. And pray to God in the end that I don't look stupid. Why do I feel I'm unable, double-minded, I'm unstable? Wanna put all me on the table so God can make me an angel. Was living life like Cain, cause I was jealous of Abel. God told me, look up, child, I just want to save you. I need to hear your voice in life so I could get through this. For you, I shoot for the stars every time and I don't miss. Every time I drop a hit, I still don't feel the bliss. And deep down, I know it's only because I'm still living in sin. You transform my pen, they laughed at me, now I'm laughing with them. Transform my gifts so now I can't even rap with them. I need to use my talents because the devil be distracting them. says Russia is switching tactics in its strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure. Moscow unleashed a massive barrage of missiles and drones across Ukraine on Thursday, leaving at least six people dead and more than 20 wounded. But Kyiv says Russia um, did something new. It fired different types of missiles and drones at the same time, including some missiles that Ukraine can't shoot down, such as Russia's hypersonic Kinzhal weapon. Ukraine is now saying that Russia's use of hypersonic missiles are evading Ukraine's defense systems. An advisor to Zelensky put it this way they're, about the defense systems. The, they say they are not coping well enough. What do you make of that? How big of a problem is that? Well, Kate, I think it's a huge problem uh, because, you know, the systems that we've designed are not good at all against hypersonics. And, uh, you know, part of the big problem that we have is not only does that impact the Ukrainians who are directly involved in this war, of course, but it also impacts us. Uh, we really have to get uh, ahead of ourselves here with developments that would allow us to better track and uh, better uh, take care of uh, hypersonic weapons. And that's a very difficult thing, given the fact that they travel at a minimum five times the speed of sound. So uh, this is a, a critical component uh, for us, for the Ukrainians. Let's bring in now Mark Esper, the former Defense Secretary under President Donald Trump. Thank you for joining us, sir. The Ukrainian Energy Minister says that Russia used uh, a, they're using a new tactic in this very large scale uh, offensive against um, Ukraine's, Ukrainians. What did this tell you about the strategy right now? When you, they're doing all of these cities, they seem to be bombarding them. The strategy seems to be ramping up. 
Well, the sense is, what, what was it that the attack in the last 24, 48 hours was retribution for a, an attack allegedly committed by the Ukrainians within Russia. And so the, uh, the Kremlin's response was to hit them hard with 95 plus missiles, to use a range of ballistic missiles, hypersonics, crews, drones. And um, what you find out when you dig a little bit deeper is that they're actually using air defense missiles and anti-ship missiles to attack Ukraine's infrastructure. And it, and it tells you that their, their stocks seem to be fairly depleted. Now, kudos to the Ukrainians. It looks like their energy infrastructure is back online today. And it just shows you the, shows you the resilience of the Ukrainian people when it comes to these unwarranted attacks on their infrastructure. But when it comes to these hypersonic missiles that they're using, you know, they used, I think it's six so far in this latest attack. They have barely used anything like that in the entire last year. So what does it say to you that they're ramping up hypersonic missiles? But also the concern, as we were talking to John Curry about yesterday, Ukraine has nothing that can knock those out of the sky. Right, look, they're very hard to defeat. They, they travel at five times the speed of sound, up to 10 times the speed of sound, very difficult to knock out of the air. It's, it's a challenge that we in the United States military were looking at as well, because we know that China is also developing uh, hypersonic weapons. So uh, it's gonna remain a challenge. The fact that they haven't used more of them is surprising, but this again calls for the need to Ukraine to get the air defenses it needs. I don't think they still have Patriot air defense systems. Not that Patriot could defeat hypersonics, but still, there's much more we need to give and provide the Ukrainians in order to beat back the Russian assaults. Yeah. Mm. Would that be problematic, though, for America, for NATO, if by giving them that, won't they? I guess, well, Putin will see it as any act of aggression. Anything that NATO does is an act of aggression anyway. Well, we've already committed to providing Patriot. We actually have Ukrainian soldiers uh, reportedly in Oklahoma training on the system. But it takes time to train. It takes time to deliver the systems. Uh, another European allies providing systems as well. But again, these were things that the Ukrainians were asking for months and months ago. And it's a shame that they, they don't have them yet. Same goes for tanks and F-16s. But on the F-16s, you know, I'm fascinated by this because we are seeing a real split between the U.S. and Ukraine on this. Because President Biden is saying they've done the assessment. They don't think Ukraine needs them. Zelensky is telling Wolf they could be make or break to the outcome of the war, that they at least want to have the Ukrainian pilots training on them. Is it a mistake for the U.S. not to do it, on, in your view? Well, sure it is. Uh, we, you know, President Biden said a few weeks ago, no, 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 no. Uh, we now understand that Ukrainian pilots are being evaluated here in the United States to do so. There are also reports coming out of the Munich Security Conference that the United States top general in Europe, uh, Chris Cavoli, uh, Supreme Allied Commander, told lawmakers that yes, F-16s would make a difference for the Ukrainians. And it's it's obvious, they need a platform to conduct uh, uh, strikes uh, against uh, Russian elements in Ukraine. It would very much help with our Ukrainian counteroffensive that hopefully will be launched sometime in the coming months. And speaking about hypocrisy, let's shift focus to the war on TikTok. It's open, it's hostile, and it's hypocritical. The West is gunning for TikTok. Over the past few weeks, it has banned TikTok across the Atlantic. On what grounds? TikTok steals data. That's what millions of TikTok users are being told. And it's a fair point. TikTok comes from China. It is owned by a company called ByteDance. And there is a legitimate threat of TikTok sharing your data with the Chinese government. So it does pose a threat. But is it alone? Don't all social media platforms steal data? Also, concerns over TikTok have been around for a while, so why is it being banned now? 
Tonight we'll discuss. First, let's tell you which countries are going after TikTok. The US comes first. The White House has given a deadline to government agencies, a deadline to scrub off TikTok from all federal devices and systems. It should be removed from all government devices and this should be done in the next 30 days. Up north, Canada has blocked TikTok too. For now, the ban is only for government employees and government devices. Hear it from the horse's mouth. We're making the decision that uh, for government uh, employees, for government equipment, um, it is better uh, to not have them access TikTok uh, because of the concerns uh, that people have in terms of safety. Uh, this may be a first step, it may be the only step we need to take, but every step of the way we're going to be making sure uh, we're keeping Canadians safe. Meanwhile, Canadian privacy regulators have launched an investigation. They'll probe how TikTok handles the data of its users. So more action could be coming. Across the Atlantic, TikTok is facing a hard time in Europe. The European Commission has banned the use of TikTok for all of its staff. They cannot use the app, neither on their personal nor on their corporate devices. Why has the European Commission taken this step? To protect data and increase cybersecurity, it says. And how many employees will be affected by this ban? More than 32,000. They've all been given a deadline. Remove TikTok from your phones, from your devices by the 15th of March. And if the US is doing it, if Canada and Europe are doing it, how can the United Kingdom not do it? Surprisingly though, London is yet to join the banned TikTok bandwagon, but it's under pressure to hop on. And soon it might. Lawmakers in the ruling Conservative Party want action against the Chinese app. In fact, I have a quote from the chair of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. This is what he says. We run the risk of being marooned as a tech security laggard among free and open nations. So London's case is that of FOMO, fear of missing out. Which brings us back to the question, why is the West coming together to take on TikTok? Their big concern is the Chinese law, a law that requires all Chinese companies to assist the government when asked to, and assist how. But in the case of tech companies, assist by providing any and all data that Beijing wants. What's worse, last year TikTok made an admission. It said that some of its staff in China could access user data. So if the Chinese government asks for data, TikTok will have to give it. And how much data are we talking about? data 1 billion users. In the US alone, TikTok has over 113 million active users. In Canada, about 8.3 million people and around 26% of all adults are on TikTok. What about Europe? As of last year, about 228 million people in Europe were using TikTok. The growth of this app has been phenomenal. After its global launch, it took just nine months to add 100 million users. Nine months for 100 million users for TikTok. Do you know how long it took for Instagram to achieve that? Two and a half years. What about revenues? TikTok's revenues are projected to hit $18 billion this year. That'd be a jump of 55% from last year. By 2024, TikTok's revenues could reach $23 billion. That's still nowhere close to the hundreds of billions that Meta and Google mint. But it's a threat nonetheless. It's a threat to American tech companies. Meta, for example, has a lot of reasons to worry. Last year, Meta's ad revenue fell for the first time since 2012. Meta, like many other Silicon Valley giants, sees TikTok as an existential threat, a threat that must be neutralized. 
Do you know what Meta has been doing about it? Lobbying against TikTok. And this lobbying campaign specifically targets TikTok for its handling of user data. In response, TikTok has hired lobbyists of its own, at least 40 of them, 4-0. In America, that's the way to influence policy and public opinion. Nobody asks about conflict of interest. All you have to do is to, is to lobby lawmakers. It's all legal. And honestly, the concerns about TikTok are not exaggerated. But the Western response, especially the American response, does look motivated. Is it really about data security? Or is it to secure the business interests of Silicon Valley players? West can learn from India, perhaps. India banned TikTok way back in 2020, a blanket ban, but its reasons were quite different. It was done to punish China right after the violent Galwan Valley clashes. And TikTok was not the only Chinese app to be banned. Hundreds of Chinese apps faced action in India. But coming back to the case of the West, yes, your data might not be safe with TikTok, but is it safe with American tech companies? If you believe that, I've got a rock to sell to you. Not only do American big tech giants have access to users' data, they even sell this data to third-party clients. That is how you see personalized ads and content on Facebook, Instagram, and Google. But the US is not bothered about domestic thieves. It has identified the enemy, and it's TikTok. The map of our world is about to change. And I'm not talking about China breaching boundaries. I'm talking about the continent of Africa splitting into two. It's being predicted now. An entirely new ocean could emerge in the African continent. Reports say two sections of Africa, of the continent, have started to move apart. And this change is associated with the East African Rift System. It's one of the largest rifts in the world. And this split, if it happens, like any other process in geology, could take millions of years. But how will it change our world? Here's a report. Our planet is ever-changing and one such major change is expected in Africa. The continent will be split, quite literally. And there could be a new ocean in the making. We are talking of the East African Rift. It has been developing for 22 million years. Yes, you heard us right, 22 million years. It extends over thousands of kilometers through countries like Ethiopia, Kenya, Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, and Rwanda. What is this rift? Rifts are valleys or lowland regions. They form when the Earth's tectonic plates move apart. And why does this happen? Because the irregularly shaped tectonic plates are constantly in motion. In 2018, a sudden large crack appeared in Kenya. It caused immense destruction, including a highway collapse. Initial theories linked it to the East African Rift. But the two sides of the crack did not have the same outline. Like trying to join two pieces of a puzzle that don't belong together. Later it was discovered that this was most likely caused by soil erosion. Now many are speculating that the possible split in Africa could be connected to the same rift. Experts suggest that two major sections of the continent are already moving apart. This could eventually lead to a new body of water between them. But fret not, you won't be around to witness it. Why? Because it could take 10 million years to fully form. 
And how will it change Africa? Landlocked countries like Uganda and Zambia could have their very own coastlines. If the crack in Kenya garnered attention in 2018, in 2005, it was Ethiopia which was in the news. That's when a 56-kilometer-long crack appeared in its deserts. Researchers say this could have been the beginning of the formation of the water body we are talking about now. Believe it or not, this has happened before. Tectonic shifts were major factors in the creation of many regions we see today. The Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden between East Africa and West Asia were created like this. The Himalayas were created in the same fashion when India and Eurasia collided. The story of the evolution of our planet is a fascinating one. Mountains, seas and entire new continents are created over millions of years. The next big change is coming in Africa. Two continents and a new ocean. This story is just beginning. So this is the beginning of this spring offensive. Is I mean, this is the big question? Is this the big spring offensive right now in Ukraine? Uh, only I guess one man knows for sure, and that's Vladimir Putin. But overnight, Russia launched this massive offensive um, aimed at the heart of Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Eighty-one missiles fired, large track of a sixty-one. Uh, excuse me, six six hypersonic missiles. Don't you think it's a little strange that we keep putting seasons on these offensives? Like it's, it's like, summer. I mean, we we really put a lot into the the winter offensive. Yeah. You know what was going to happen, and I guess if you're, you know, planning war, then you do plan around the weather. <sighs> yes. Yeah. I guess. I mean, and right now, it, you know, this this could be this could portend the launch of the like a massive a massive a massive offense, which we're going to talk to Scott Ritter about in just a moment. But here here's the map of the airstrikes um, over the past 24 hours, which just hit um, just about every every spot in Ukraine. Um, nothing was left untouched in this. And so, of course, NATO sounding the alarm. We need to send more money and more weapons into Ukraine. For more on the latest offensive overnight Russia into Ukraine, I want to bring in former weapons inspector Scott Ritter, a former U.S. Marine who's been watching this very, very closely over the past 24 hours. And, and Scott, there's a couple of big move, moving pieces on this, right? We hear from NATO that it looks like Bakhmut is about to fall. And also want to get your perspective on the use of the aircraft to hit these targets. That was something that you were wondering about for many, many months. When would we see the ramping up uh, of aircraft be striking these targets? So first to Bakhmut, um, and this looks like it's about to fall. Do you agree with that assessment? And what does that portend for the rest of the war? Well, I'm always hesitant uh, when people say it's about to fall, especially something that's being defended as heavily as this is being defended. You know, uh, President Zelensky's come out and contradicted everybody from Lloyd Austin to Zeluzhny and, and um, everybody in between uh, and said, no, Bakhmut is of strategic importance and that we are going to be doing everything we can to hold on to Bakhmut. Um, and I think you're going to see the Ukrainians, um, you know, sending uh, some carefully hoarded reserves to Bakhmut to hold it because, as Zelensky said, uh, if Bakhmut falls, it basically opens up um, the rest of the Donbass for Russian occupation, that Russia will begin rolling up the Ukrainian defenses, because uh, Bakhmut was the, the Gordian knot that held this you know, extensively uh, entrenched defensive line uh, together, and the Solodar-Bakhmut complex. And when Bakhmut goes, 
there's a straight shot to Kramatorsk. You can roll up the left and right flanks, and Ukraine won't have uh, the forces necessary to contain the Russians. And that'll begin the gradual unraveling of the Ukrainian defenses. This could be, um, you know, the Kursk of this conflict. I mean, one of the, you know one of the more decisive battles of or the decisive battle of this of this war. So. Um, you know, and if the Ukraine and, and the other thing people need to understand is that, um, you know, this isn't the United States versus Iraq. I'm not denigrating Iraqi manhood. I'm not. But the Iraqi army was not of the caliber. They couldn't stand toe to toe with the United States. Uh, the Ukrainians are extraordinarily brave, extraordinarily well trained, and for the most part, extraordinarily well led. They're very well equipped. They're putting up a heck of a fight. Um, it's not me that's saying this. Uh, Prigozhin. The head of Wagner uh, speaks in glowing terms about the uh, quality of the Ukrainian soldier that has been faced on the battlefield. He, uh, he calls them heroes. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is that you know when you when, when people hear oh you know, Bakhmut's getting ready to fall, you you might you might create the image of a defeated enemy. The Ukrainians aren't defeated; they're fighting. Uh, they're fighting hard. The, the, the casualty level that they've taken is unreal, and the fact that they continue to uh, throw themselves into this battle. You know, the last time we saw a military that was able to absorb these casualties and continue uh, to, to, to double down and, and press forward was during World War II with the Soviet Army, the Red Army, which suffered unbelievable casualties, but to continue to be able to fight. The Ukrainians are suffering, proportionally speaking, casualties that are the equivalent of what the Soviets lost during World War II in a, in a period of time. They've, they've lost in a year what we lost, the United States lost in terms of combat casualties for all of World War II on both the Pacific and European fronts. So, um, you know, in General Cavoli, the, the commander of U.S. forces and the Supreme Allied Commander uh, in Europe recently said in a defense forum in, in uh, Sweden that the scope and scale of the violence taking place on the battlefield today is beyond the imagination of NATO. NATO's not ready to fight this fight. Ukrainians are fighting this fight. And so I think even though Bakhmut might be ready to fall, it's only going to fall after much more hard fighting. It's a very difficult fight against a very um, capable and determined enemy. And um, it, it's not going to be easy. Um, you know, it's held out now since May, and um, it, it could hold out for another day, two days, three days, a week, um, depending on the tenacity and the uh, dedication of the Ukrainian defender, which to date has been, you know, of a very high level. So um, we'll see. But if once it falls, I think Zelensky's right. I mean, the Ukrainians have overcommitted to the battlefield, to, to Bakhmut. They've suffered tremendous casualties. They've burned up their reserves. And when the battlefield ends, understand that when Bakhmut goes, you're taking a frontage and you're potentially ballooning it out. And the Russians have the forces to go into that balloon and, and fill the line. The Ukrainians don't have the forces capable of containing that balloon. Right now, the Ukrainians are concentrated in Bakhmut, but when, if, if the Russians balloon out, the Ukrainians won't have the forces capable of containing that. So you might see Ukrainians compelled to do withdrawals similar to what, if you remember back in September when the Russians withdrew from Kharkov, you know, because they were ballooning out, they didn't have sufficient forces, Ukrainians penetrated, the Russians had to fall back on a more concentrated defense line. You could see this happening to the Ukrainians where they are going to be compelled to give up significant territory, probably in the north, to fall back on a defensive line that's shorter and enabled uh, to be, um, you know, able to be held in a more comprehensive fashion. So I think Zelensky is 100% correct. If, if Bakhmut goes, 
I think you're going to see the rapid unraveling of the Ukrainian army in the Donbas uh, region. And then that, of course, means as you talk about you know, what is left of the Ukrainian army at that point after Bakhmut, and you're seeing NATO allies ramping up the the rhetoric about additional weapons, um, additional monies flowing into Ukraine. Marine Le Pen, uh, former presidential candidate in France over the past 24 hours saying, if we continue to send weapons into Ukraine, that this would could wind up as a hundred years war uh, with a continued dripping of weapons and money into this zone. So who will do the fighting? <laughs> I mean, it would just be, be Polish forces, US forces, who's gonna be Ukrainian for, who's gonna be left to, to do the fighting there? Well, with all due respect to Marie Le Pen, and I know where she's coming from, her heart's in the right place, but um, it won't matter. Uh, I mean, right now, you know, the polls are bragging about how um, 10 of the 14 um, uh, Leopard A4 tanks that were promised are now deployed into Ukraine. 10 tanks. 10 tanks. 10 tanks. Um, it's nothing. Plus, in order to support those 10 tanks, um, the, the Polish have to build a uh, logistics hub inclusive of a manufacturing capability for spare parts because they don't make spare parts for the tanks anymore. Um, so the complexity of supporting 10 tanks, the, the amount of resources that have to be put in to keep 10 tanks in the field is ridiculous. Uh, if what if France is gonna what, provide Leclerc tanks, how many, 14? The same problem. How do you support that? It's a completely different support uh, requirement than the Leopard A4. We're going to provide 31 M1 tanks at some point in time. Right now, we're, we're basically we're talking 60 tanks. 60 tanks is not going to turn this into a 100-year war. The Ukrainians are losing manpower, equipment, organizational structure, etc., at a rate far greater than NATO could ever replenish it. But the big factor is artillery ammunition. 155 millimeter ammunition that Ukraine must have to be um, competitive on the battlefield, uh, even in a losing cause, to hold the Russians back, to slow their rate of advance. Ukraine must have artillery, and they are going to run out of artillery ammunition sometime this summer, and NATO is unable to replenish it. And in a war that's defined largely by artillery, when you run out of artillery and the other side does not, you lose that war. So this will not be a 100-year war. This is going to be you know, a hundred day war. Um, I, I just think when Bakhmut falls, we're going to see the unraveling of the, of the Ukrainian military position. And Iran has just hit the white gold mine. Lithium is called white gold and not without good reason. The metal will drive the world in the future. Batteries needed for a variety of electronics run on lithium. And lithium is a critical element in electric vehicles. And if Iran's discovery of lithium is true, it will make the country the world's second largest holder of lithium reserves. It could radically change Tehran's fortunes and force the world to rethink its relationship with the country. This is the same Iran that is amongst the most sanctioned countries in the world. Lithium could be its way out. Our next report tells you more. Lithium, it's all around you in your smartphones, laptops, headphones, and just about any battery-driven device. It's also in cars. Batteries used in electric vehicles are made of lithium. As the world tries to wean itself off fossil fuels, lithium has become an extremely important element. 
For countries that have lithium deposits, it's a prized possession that makes them matter. And Iran is the latest country to hit the lithium jackpot. On Saturday, Iran announced the discovery of large lithium deposits in the western province of Hamadan. Iran's Minister for Industry, Mines and Trade said, for the first time in Iran, a lithium reserve has been discovered in Hamadan. He also gave a rough figure. Iran estimates that it now has 8.5 million tons of lithium. That accounts for the world's second largest lithium reserves after Chile. Chile holds 9.2 million tons of lithium reserves. That also makes Iran the country that holds a tenth of the world's lithium reserves. Before Iran, India was the country that got lucky with lithium. Last month, India discovered close to 5.9 million tons of lithium reserves in Jammu and Kashmir. The discovery of the light metal has the potential to propel India's electric vehicle and electronic sectors. But for Iran, the discovery of lithium means a lot more. It could change the way the world looks at Iran. Presently, Iran is reeling under the stress of economic sanctions. Its economy is in a bad shape, its currency even worse. The rial has lost 30% of its value against the US dollar in the last two months. Inflation in Iran is hovering around the 50% mark. Iranians are now finding it difficult to buy meat. It's now out of their reach. Poverty has risen, especially in Iran's rural areas. This is happening to a country that is one of the world's largest producers of oil and gas. But international sanctions make it extremely difficult for Iran to export its fuel. That means there's not much revenue coming in, resulting in economic misery. And the people are losing their patience. There is a limit to our patience. We can tolerate difficulties to a certain limit. When we are past that limit, people stop and ask, what are we supposed to do? Maybe tolerate reaches 1 million rials. How are we supposed to live? How far this thing is going to go? Until when? The lithium discovery could be a lifesaver for Iran. Lithium is an expensive metal and its demand is expected to rise. If Iran manages to become an exporter of lithium, and that's a big if, its economic woes could be significantly mitigated. The West would have to walk back on its harsh sanctions on Iran to import its lithium. And even if it doesn't, the world is just so much wider than the West. What's to say there won't be countries willing to bypass sanctions and buy lithium from Iran? China most certainly will. China is among the biggest importers of lithium, and its ties with Iran are flourishing. Iran might have just found a key to escape its economic crisis. Will it know how to use it, though? Only time will tell. Chilling the world as they tune to the Bay Podcast. It's the hottest message out there. When I was chilling, I'm always tuning in to Bay. He has the hottest podcast out there. Oh, yes, very informative.
When it's home chilling the world, I stay tuned to the Fade Podcast. It's the hottest message out there. Hey y'all, when I'm at the spot just chilling, when I'm in my car just driving around, I always use the phase to keep it real. This thing was real. And that's one of the hottest podcasts around. I definitely suggest it. Check them out. I'm about to get on their ass this time. I'm about to get on their wrong. The police can kill a man on camera and get qualified immunity. And I'm tired of beefing with my own kind. I'm trying to find some unity. Tired of the foolery. The system abusing me. I got to ride with the tool of me. This shit ain't cool to me. But I'll be damned if I let you niggas make a fool of me. So I keep two on me. Uh, I done came a long way from the block with breakdowns. Finally opened my eyes when I had my daughter. Got tired of them shakedowns. The way I survived the game is still pain in my heart. I got a lot to say now. And I'ma show my whole ass on these motherfuckers. I ain't about to play around. Whatever happened to freedom of speech, cause they telling niggas what to say now. When guilty ass don't wanna hear the truth, try to act offended, shit pitiful. If I was you, I'd be miserable. This war we fighting is spiritual. In other words, I'm doing God's work when I turn thoughts into artwork. My words fly like darts work, specifically designed to hit the target. They don't even wanna teach history the way it's meant to be because the shit is heartless. I might not change the world, but it's a chance I can spark the brain that's gonna get it started. Many die for me to walk like this, for me to talk like this, but the peace to Marcus. Got my eyes behind the scope, and I ain't taking number headshots. I got great aim, but my four five still came with a red dot. I got in this game, and I put this bitch in the headlock. The U.S. to withdraw from the agreement. Israel. Israel wants the U.S. out of the agreement. And so Russia, under that agreement, remember Obama's uh, Iran deal, okay? So that, that's what this is all about. So that, that deal that Obama worked out, um, supposedly, you know, prevented Iran from building nuclear weapons. In that deal, Iran agreed to ship their uranium to Russia for storage. For storage, Russia agreed put it in a vault in a safe, you know, put it in a segregated vault and say, we've got all your uranium over here. That was part of the deal. Doesn't that sound like Russia was being the responsible leader in the world? And had agreed and was part of the JCPOA. Yes, it was, it was part of it. So, Netanyahu and, and Mossad are pressuring Biden to get rid of Obama's deal. Remember, they got rid of it under Trump. Right. And then when Biden came in, they, they brought it back. But now they're trying to get, get him to get rid of it again. So what the story is saying is, it, it sounds like well, on, the, on the surface, you look at the headline. Oh, my gosh. Russia's going to give uranium to Tehran. It's their uranium. And then you read the story and you go, wait a minute. Russia was the responsible person here that did the U.S. a favor by saying, we'll take the uranium, we'll store it, and we'll give it 
you know, an accounting, an audit for it. But if there's no agreement, yeah. then what are we doing holding the uranium? It doesn't belong to us, it belongs to it Iran. It belongs to Iran, so we'll just send it back. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's being, it's being spun in the propaganda machine as Russia is going to supply uranium to Iran, to Iran will build nuclear bombs to destroy Israel. You know, and it's Israel that's trying to get Obama, to get President Obama, to get Biden to cancel the agreement. You know why? They want the war. Yes. They need this to happen to justify the attack. So are you telling me, Rick, that all these times where they say we're only 12 days away from Iran having a nuclear weapon, they don't even have uranium? People are aware of that they are supposed to become the one world government as proclaimed in the Great Reset. Our interview partner is a former high-ranking member of the United Nations. His name is Kalin Georgescu. I was absolutely sure that the uh, United Nations is a fantastic institution which can help uh, the people and the welfare and the human being and to be a good life, to have a good life and everything to be in harmony with the nature. In the ground, I find that the most important part of the game, that the nature, the gods, the universe, give to us everything we want. Everything. So he can cover all our needs, but it's impossible to cover our greed. And the greed is not from the majority of the people. The greed is coming from a small part of the people, the oligarch, the world oligarch system. UN is the platform, the bridge uh -huh. for the oligarchist system to control. And, and the oligarchs are the ones who gather once a year they in Davos, use, the members use, of the World Economic Forum? Of course, it's UN platform for uh, 2030 with Davos uh, agenda. Peace, they mean war. When they say justice, they mean injustice. This is a point. Exactly like in sustainable development. I have been to most of the meetings, and official and unofficial, and negotiation. I can tell you how is the result. The result is that in the end of the day, it's just one conclusion. How we can increase the consumer. Mm -hmm. One is to, to, to exploit the natural resources, for example, in Ghana, mm -hmm. or in Guinea Conakry. Why say Guinea Conakry? Because Guinea Conakry as I have seen myself in all the planet I have, I have been, is one of the most um, richest countries in the world. And it's very small, very small, but it's fantastic rich. I have no idea. Fantastic, the best top of gold and other natural resources that are in Guinea Conakry. Mm -hmm. So Guinea Conakry, if they want to exploit the natural resources for themselves, this is fine. But if they are coming others yeah. from outside, this is a problem. So here we are with a natural resources exploitation because majority of the countries in the world, they have no control for their own natural resources. There are, it's exactly the system controlled by Davos particularly, with the same agenda as UN, exactly as I told you. And they control the natural resources and 
people on the power, because they cannot say leaders, because it doesn't exist political leaders. Mm -hmm. People which they have the power, they are their employees. The world oligarchy system, they have the power in Europe, because they control all the people like Bundeskanzler or president or prime minister or whatever there are. Mm -hmm. Because they, they are not the employee of their people. They work for the other side. Exactly. They, they work for the oligarchs. There are employees of the oligarchs. And here is the main important point, Reinhardt, that all the majority of the humanity, people, they, they understand that what Davos said, that the control is about the financial and banking system. The powerful is where are the natural resources. Look in Africa. It's a, it's a continent which I know quite very, very well. I spent almost eight years in different missions and other things like this. So Africa is uh, probably the most beautiful part of the world. And doesn't exist three countries there. I mean, Guinea Conakry can be, how I can say, the pearl, mm -hmm. can be the gold lingo bar of the planet. Small, beautiful, fantastic, full of natural resources. You understand? Full. Full doesn't mean full. And the people that are on the, on the street with the device in the front and play games, brainwash all of them. They control exactly the, the presidency institution and the people that are the slaves. Was there a particular incident that made you decide, I have to get out of here? Or was it a slow process? Well, of course, it was step by step. Mm -hmm. but the most, most important one was my last mission in uh, Marshall Islands, mm -hmm. where I have seen probably the, the most beautiful part of the world. And I have seen how, how a disaster was made by United States uh, with the exercise of the atomic bombs in 1960, which they destroyed totally the most part of the archipelags in Marshall Islands. But the most important was affected this paradise. With people, they didn't know that what exists the second war. They didn't know that there exist doctors. And they didn't need any. Yeah, because they simply, and, and the average was 180 years old, 200 years old. Really? Yeah, and now the average is 35, 40 years old. The average age of when they died was 180, 200. Oh my God. Yes, okay, exactly. And now the average is 40, 40, 45. No more. Because of the radiation. With a respect for the people who I met in Marshall Islands, I'm speaking, of course, the local people, I uh, quit it. I decided to, to live forever. It was a point of consciousness, plug off of Matrix. Seven, an update to the banking chaos that continues to unravel. As today, we're seeing small banks crashing left and right. And as the trade began this morning on the markets, all types of different companies were halted. You can see here the symbols for all of those on the New York Stock Exchange being halted. One after another, dozens and dozens and dozens of them going into this mode. And if we look here at even the updated ticker over here on the NASDAQ, you can see some of them like Western Alliance Bank, First Republic Bank. They have just gone down here recently and there's no resumption time. So they're still down and a whole huge list of other banks. And you can see First Republic Bank went down, came back up and now is down again. And this continues to happen.
as Joe Biden tries to come out and tell everybody everything is just fine and walks off stage without taking a single question. We also have individuals waiting in long lines, people rushing the banks this morning trying to get what money they can out. And we have others furious because they're finding out that their credit has been cut. Shout outs to Mally Mo and others out there. Had quite a few people emailing me and even hitting me up in the Twitter feeds saying the same thing, that they have had their available credit cut from like $4,000 down to like less than 1000 And this is many people saying this. Just so happens all of those were complaining about J.P. Morgan Chase. All of them. So this is a crazy situation, to say the least, but one we've warned about for the better part of a decade that this day was going to come. You better have a plan. You better have a place to hedge your bets, gold, silver, other things you can barter with. And people hitting the gold and silver hard. The guys that track the gold and silver are saying that they have never seen such a, a spike, a buying spike over the weekend as they've seen this past weekend. So some of the places have already sold out a fractional silver and gold. If you can find it, make moves. Join me, Boo7, an update to the banking chaos that continues to... Here's Craig Melvin. We've got some breaking news in the White House right now. President Biden talking about the historic collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Let's listen in. And the hardworking employees can breathe in here as well. Last week, we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs from small businesses and system overall. I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, he took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured. Rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I'm on this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. In my administration, no one, in my no one is above the law. And finally, we must reduce the risk of this happening again. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including the Dodd-Frank law to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. 
Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed. On top of all that, let's also take a look at a moment to put the situation in a broader context. We've made strong economic progress in the past two years. We've created more than 12 million new jobs. More jobs in two years than any president has ever created in a single four-year term. Unemployment is below 4% for 14 straight months. Take-home pay for workers is going up, especially for lower and middle-income workers. And we've seen record numbers of people apply to start new businesses, more than 10 million of them. More than 10 million applications over the last two years starting businesses. Now we need to keep the program this progress going. That's what swift action that my administration over the past few years is all about. Protecting depositors, protecting the banking system, protecting the economic gains we've made together for the American people. Thank you. God bless you. And may God protect I know y'all not fools. I told you this maybe, what, 20 posts ago, I said, one thing about my American brethren, we may be slow to react to the Ukrainian war and to the laundering of billions of American taxpayer dollars, but when you directly mess We begin the show tonight with a breakthrough story that could prove to be a turning point in West Asia. A story that could change the region's geopolitical dynamics. This is what I am talking about. Iran and Saudi Arabia, two sworn enemies, are now friends again. That's right. The two arch rivals have agreed to mend ties and put their differences aside. After seven years of hostility, this is a huge development with far-reaching implications. And what makes it even more interesting is the country that has brokered this truce. China. Riyadh and Tehran are normalizing their relations as part of an agreement mediated by Beijing. According to reports, talks between the two sides had been ongoing in Beijing since the 6th of March. And four days later, these talks have proven fruitful and how. This is what Iran's state news agency has said, citing a joint statement. I'm quoting, as a result of the talks, Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to resume diplomatic relations and reopen embassies within two months. After implementing the decision, the foreign ministers of both the countries will be meeting to prepare for the exchange of ambassadors. This agreement, if it comes to a conclusion, could have wide-reaching implications vis-a-vis -vis Iran's nuclear deal and the civil war in Yemen, where the two sides are locked in a proxy war. But the biggest highlight of this story is China's involvement. Its role as a broker, as a peacemaker, is striking to say the least. It could strengthen China's diplomatic position further simply because it has done something even America could not do. It has brought together the two, two biggest players in West Asia, two countries that until recently 
could not even see eye to eye. For decades, they have fought for dominance and waged proxy wars. And now all of a sudden, they are trying to bury the hatchet. A couple of questions are bound to emerge here. What's behind the thaw between Iran and Saudi Arabia? What brought them to the negotiating table? Also, why were they fighting in the first place? Is their rivalry religious or political or both? And how will this latest development change the region? Let me start with the rivalry. The roots of Saudi Arabia's rivalry with Iran are often sought in a 1,000-year-old religious schism between Sunnis and Shias. The two main branches of Islam, Iran and Saudi Arabia, are on the opposing sides of this split. But it's important to not overstate this split because this rivalry is also political. Just have a look at the proxy wars. In Syria, Saudi Arabia backs the rebel groups. It provides them generous military and financial assistance. Iran does the opposite. It supports the Assad regime in fighting the rebel groups backed by Riyadh. In Lebanon, Iran supports the Hezbollah, a Shia militant group. Saudi Arabia, in fact, has for the longest time supported the Lebanese government to take on the Hezbollah. And then we have Yemen, where Iran supports the Houthi rebels a Shia militia group fighting the regime. Saudi Arabia, along with a coalition of Arab nations, helps the regime strike the Houthis. And now that the two are about to become friends, all these campaigns could come to an end. The question is, why? What really led to this thaw? You see, Iran's reasons are largely economic, U.S. sanctions are crushing its economy. Restoring ties with the second largest economy in West Asia will help Iran broaden regional trade. Also, reach out to several Sunni-majority countries. For Saudi Arabia, the reasons are both economic and political. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is trying to diversify the economy. And remember, for that, he needs to change his country's image. A de-escalation with Iran could spell an end to the proxy wars and help MBS attract investments. He needs money to realize his much-touted Vision 2030. So at the end of the day, this warming up of ties is more about money than anything else. Whatever be the case, this development will have serious implications in West Asia. See, see fam, we got to realize these people just clowning us. Like when Germany, well, I understand now some of the countries that are trying to stand out, but their country try to got their knee in their throat. But we got to allow these clowns, we got to, we got to do something better than this, y'all. We got to do something better than this. As Berlin continues to make its unwavering military support for Kiev very well known, some activists in Germany are now facing prosecution for simply expressing their opinions on a way to bring the conflict in Ukraine to an end. One anti-war activist, Heinrich Bucher, is facing up to three years in prison for making a speech against Germany's support for the conflict. His statements came at a memorial rally marking the start of Germany's invasion of the USSR. Mr. Bucher runs the anti-war cafe in Berlin, where events are regularly held against military intervention. 
Now, he says the German Chancellor has views right now that do not align with the will of the people. Hansen war es eigentlich zu Beginn. The initial idea was to create a place where alternative media can be shown and discussed. I think that we have achieved that quite well. For three years, we have also been organizing rallies at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin with friends and comrades from Latin America. We have an international network, and by the way, they are all pro-Russian and pro-Chinese. What makes this movement quite unique is that we are all openly talking about the concept of a multipolar world. I fully stand behind the Russian government and the motivations that have led to this conflict, because Russia must have felt like it had a knife at its throat. That's after all those years where they tried to appeal to Germany and to NATO to stop this aggression. I also somewhat backed the Russian government and leadership by saying that we must understand why all of that happened. That was one of the reasons for me being charged. I was accused of being a Russian propagandist or a mouthpiece of the Kremlin. My lawyer has argued that I didn't commit any offense because I have the right to freedom of speech which is granted by the fundamental laws of Germany, no matter what I might have said. I also find those accusations completely unacceptable because the German government doesn't have any right to throw accusations at Russia and interfere in Russian affairs as they have been doing for years. I think this is unacceptable and I will defend myself with all available means. We need to constantly highlight how much of a role Germany plays in this conflict and what role Germany could play if it changed its mind, got rid of this Russophobia and positioned itself differently, not against Russia, but in support of Russia. I think that we play a major role in this conflict. If Germany just said we don't want to be a part of this anymore, then everything would grind to a halt. I think this is what many Germans want. Millions of Germans who aren't publicly raising their voices, but who are also taking to the streets. As Just ahead of Macron's arrival in Kinshasa, some Congolese demonstrated against his trip to their country outside the French embassy in Kinshasa. The crowds accused Macron of backing Rwanda, which the DRC claims is supporting the M23 rebels in east of the nation. Also important to note that for decades now, the Democratic Republic of Congo has been the scene of the world's longest running conflicts. Currently, tens of thousands of people have become displaced since heavy fighting raged in the eastern DRC between Congolese army and M23 rebels. It's clear that relations between the two countries have gone from bad to worse, with Kinshasa accusing Kigali of supporting the M23 rebels and resurgence by sending its own troops into eastern Congo. Rwanda denies any involvement, but the DRC is still calling for international communities to sanction Rwanda and force it to stop supporting militants. Macron has been saying that it wants a spirit of partnership and collaboration with African countries, but many don't see these plans coming to fruition because for decades now, France's action during the genocide was and still is the subject of intense debate in Africa critics accusing France of not having done enough to prevent the massacre, even actively supporting the government responsible for the genocide. This despite Macron saying that France was not
not complicit in the genocide. It's not the fault of France. It's not France's fault. I'm sorry to say it in such blunt terms. You have not been able to restore the sovereignty, neither military nor security, nor administrative of your country. This is also a reality. We must not look for culprits outside this affair. As we've been mentioning, Macron's tour of Africa revived old colonial winds, sparking protests, even as Macron tried to convince the population that the era of France-Africa has come to an end. This age of France-Africa is well and truly over, and I sometimes have the feeling that mentalities are not evolving at the same pace as us. When I read, I hear, I see claims that France has intentions that it does not have, that it no longer has. Now it's clear that Paris is seeking to protect economic areas that it has always taken for granted, which are now subject to increased competition from major powers such as Russia, China and India. And at this point, many see France's move as a way to remain in the continent's market. In response to the terrorist actions organized by the Kiev regime on March 2nd this year in the Bryansk region, the armed forces of the Russian Federation inflicted a massive retaliation strike. High-precision long-range air, sea, and land-based weapons, including the Dagger hypersonic missile system, hit key elements of Ukraine's military infrastructure, enterprises of the military-industrial complex, as well as facilities that provide energy to them. The target of the strike has been achieved. All assigned objects have been hit. According to the Defense Ministry, Russia launched a massive retaliatory strike using hypersonic missiles. Officials say that some key elements of Ukraine's military infrastructure companies or the military-industrial complex as well as energy facilities that supply them with power were hit. Now, apart from that, the Defense Ministry says that Ukrainian attack drone bases were also destroyed. Also, the strikes disrupted the railway transfers of Ukrainian army reserves and foreign weapons and destroyed maintenance and repair facilities of military equipment as well as disabled the production of ammunition. Ukraine claims that 11 people were killed. However, Russia's defense ministry has said time and again that it only targets critical military infrastructure. Now, on Thursday afternoon, air raid alerts remained in place throughout Ukraine. Earlier on Thursday morning, online footage showed smoke rising in one of the districts of the Ukrainian capital. Mayor and former professional boxer Vitaly Klitschko confirmed explosions and uh, emergency electricity Black House were introduced. Now, uh, Odessa, Kharkov uh, were also without energy, uh, according to local authorities. Explosions were also recorded in the various places across Ukraine. Basically, the entire country is under air raid alerts. Now, several trains of the Ukrainian railways have been delayed for hours due to the absence of power. Meanwhile, here in Donetsk, Ukraine used American-made multiple launch rocket systems called HIMARS against civilian one person killed and two were wounded at a civilian bus depot near Donetsk. According to officials, six HIMARS rockets were launched, four were intercepted, and two reached the civilian target. In response to the... It's been revealed that two Ukrainian pilots are now undergoing training on F-16 simulators in the U.S., this has fueled speculation that Washington is preparing to donate the jets to Kiev, despite publicly refusing the claim. Since we haven't made the decision to provide F-16s and neither have our allies and partners, it doesn't make sense to start to train them on a system they may never get. Kiev has asked Washington to send over the F-16s for months. The
The training of the Ukrainian pilots in the U.S. is reportedly aimed at evaluating how long it would take them to be ready to operate the aircraft. While President Biden has said he's not considering giving F-16s to Kiev anytime soon, he refused to rule out doing so in the future. Former CIA analyst Larry Johnson says Washington's training of the Ukrainian pilots may be just an attempt to please U.S. critics who are calling for the fighter aircraft to be delivered. Part of it's, I think, political theater. You've got members of both the Democrat and Republican parties in the United States demanding, oh, the Biden administration needs to provide fighter jets uh, to uh, Ukraine. So one way to at least feed that uh, illusion is to say, okay, yeah, we're starting to train two pilots and hope, hope that that will placate these critics until the, the situation clarifies in Ukraine. Because, you know, candidly, uh, if it continues going as it has, uh, with Ukraine losing territory, losing forces, and the Russians continuing to shoot down any aircraft the Ukrainians put up in, put up in the air, uh, the, the whole question of providing F-16s could become moot because Ukraine would no longer have an effective military to supply such weapon systems to. After the uh, breakaway Moldovan region of Transnistria, very close to the Ukrainian border, where authorities say they've thwarted a terrorist attack allegedly perpetrated by Ukrainian national security agents targeting several senior local officials. We understand multiple suspects have been detained, and this story gets picked up now by Marina Kosareva. This uh, terrorist attack or assassination attempt was supposed to take place in the center of Tiraspol, which is the capital of the breakaway region, Transnistria, and it was targeting the leader of uh, Transnistria, Vadim Krasnoselsky. They wanted to use a land, a land Rover, and that's where they had the explosives, eight kilograms of hexagen explosives, as well as wires, screws, nuts, to basically maximize the impact. And uh, according to sources we've spoken to, the impact would have been the radius, hundreds of meters, and it would have would have seen dozens of casualties if, in fact, this happened. And it wasn't only the head of uh, Transnistria, but also other high-level officials that they were targeting. Now, multiple uh, arrests have been made. One of them, in particular, a 40-year-old man who was already a local criminal who moved to Odessa some 12 years ago uh, in Ukraine, and apparently there he joined Ukraine security services. This is what he claims now because the, the suspects are now confessing from what we hear from the regional ministry of defense. And they claim that it was Ukraine security services who organized this and also coordinated this. Uh, but of course, as we know, uh, it was thwarted. Now let's hear some more from what the prosecutor of Transnistria, what he had to say about this attack. The place where this terrorist attack was supposed to occur shows us that it was meant to target top government officials and, to no less extent, inflict numerous civilian casualties. The terrorist attack was prepared to be conducted in the center of the city of Tiraspol among a large number of our citizens. Now, a criminal case has been opened, and also we know that the head of uh, Transnistria is back in his office uh, with maximum security, as you can imagine, and they are planning for possible scenarios of a repeat to make sure that they are ready. They also want answers from Ukraine based on what these suspects have told them. Uh, in mainland Moldova, the government there says they have no idea what is going on. They, 
they've heard nothing about any terrorist attack in Transnistria. So this is where we're at right now. We spoke with uh, Cornel Churia, a political analyst, claiming that Transnistria is seeking to attack Ukraine. We see that Transnistria doesn't have any military disposition, but Kyiv says otherwise, seeing a certain threat there. And they are afraid, or at least they say that the Transnistria troops, which are still not so numerous, can launch a strike on Odessa. But as we see, the Transnistria's forces are not that powerful. I think that Transnistria, in its turn, will maintain a cautious policy towards Ukraine, will behave in a special way toward it. Perhaps a kind of protest note will be sent, explanations will be required, but nothing more. NATO General Secretary Jen Stoltenberg says that allowing the Quran to be burned should not prevent Sweden from entering NATO. This comes after Turkey defended its decision to block Stockholm's membership, pointing out the fact the country allowed the holy book to be set on fire. This is an issue that was not included in the agreement and should not prevent Sweden from becoming a member of NATO. I have conveyed to Turkey that people can have different opinions on Quran burning. Many countries have laws that restrict such actions, but you can't ban everything you don't like. We will not say yes to your entry into NATO as long as you allow our holy book, the Quran, to be burned and torn apart, as well as allow this to be done with the approval of your security personnel. It was uh, late January when political activist Rasmus Paludan burned the Holy Quran in front of the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. The incident sparked widespread criticism across the Islamic world. It also set back Sweden's bid to join NATO, with Turkey holding veto power over Sweden's ascension to the military alliance. And this, while many Europeans have uh, been calling the act an expression of the freedom of speech. Well, trilateral talks between Sweden, Finland and Turkey are due to be held in Brussels on Thursday to discuss this matter. Earlier, Ankara stated it will not support Stockholm's application, objecting to the way Sweden handles groups like the Kurdistan Workers' Party, an organization that Turkey considers to be terrorists. An international law professor, Mesut Kassin, says Sweden does not fit the all-for-one NATO principle. The Sweden is an independent state and aim to be uh, to be a NATO member. However, if they want to be a NATO member, they have to be open. The main idea of the, the NATO first class, first they have to be fighting together the international terrorism, and they provide. Even though the situation, they do sabotage and they continue propaganda against the Turkey, especially against our president. And and when they're looking at unacceptable situation. To our whole biggest crowd. When looking the, in our uh, the idea, Ankara will not accept the civilian's application. We will recall Article 5. I am former commander in the Turkish Armed Forces. Customs further is telling Article 5. One for all, all for one. How can we coming civilian to protect our uh, nation? NATO Breaking news from the Georgian capital Tbilisi, where protesters have broken through a barricade near the country's parliament while attempting to storm the building.
attempt to quell the protests, police resorted to tear gas and water cannon. Road traffic has been blocked with mass arrests also reported. Some of the protesters have been seen throwing Molotov cocktails and stones at police officers, leaving several injured. Ambulances have arrived to help treat any casualties. Well, earlier on Tuesday, the proposed law sparked clashes between Georgian lawmakers inside Parliament. Washington has also weighed in, saying it does not rule out the possibility of imposing sanctions against Georgian authorities over the controversial law. This comes as the country's president is visiting the U.S. After cutting shorter meetings with officials there, Salom Zurabishbishib. The Shavili has addressed the Georgian nation, saying that she will veto the controversial law while saying she supports the protesters. We'll bring you more as the situation develops, so do stay with us on RT International for that. Thousands are taking to the streets in a second day of protest against a new foreign agent bill passed by Parliament. Several other cities have also hosted mass rallies. Many women have joined the demonstrations in a march against what they call total control. US and EU flags have been spotted in the crowds in front of Georgia's Parliament building in Tbilisi. Let's get the details now from our correspondent who's there for us, Don Quarter. Uh, Don, many thanks for joining us. Uh, tell, tell us what the situation on the ground is like at the moment. And does it look like things are heating up or cooling down? Hi there, Nikki. Well, as you can see, I'm in the center of the action here in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia. Right behind me, you can see the parliament building in front of which thousands of people have gathered to oppose this draft legislation that the parliament passed. Uh, that would essentially make it so that every organization that receives over 20% of their funding from foreign sources would have to register as foreign agencies. A lot of these protesters are calling this a Russian-style law. There's a lot of Ukrainian flags here and European Union flags, some implied anti-Russian sentiment, even though this, uh, a very similar law, also exists in the United States, actually. It was uh, passed in, back in 1938 before any sort of uh, foreign agency law was passed in Russia or, of course, draft legislation here. Now, today, the protests have been relatively peaceful, but the protesters' leadership have given the parliament an ultimatum. They've said that the parliament has one hour to release all of the protesters who have been arrested here and revoke its support for this draft legislation. Otherwise, the protesters will take, quote-unquote, different measures. That's because... I mean, uh, yesterday when these protests broke out, they were anything but peaceful. We saw protesters throwing Molotov cocktails, setting up barricades. They even tried to storm the parliament building in, uh, in an event that a lot of people have been likening to the events of uh, the Euromaidan coup d'etat back in 2014 that happened in Ukraine. Now, the Georgian president right now is in the United States, and she released a video supporting the protesters and calling for the parliament to revoke its uh, support for this draft legislation, coming out in criticism of this draft legislation. So we've got some sort of rift right here right now between the parliament and the president. Uh, it's not so clear whether it's going to uh, heat up or cool down right now. The parliament seems pretty firm in its position, and if it stays that way, it's very likely that we will see a continuation of what happened last night as well, where uh, around 60 uh, protesters were arrested and around 50 police officers were injured. Don, many 
thanks for the update. That's Artisolo Corp.